I'm your host, Joe Balecki. Here's how this show works. It's a writing, interview, conversation podcast, and audio literary magazine where the writers who have been on the show tell me who should be on the show in the future. I collect all the names that my previous guests have given me, and I use that pool to pick from when choosing who's going to be on the next month. This month on the show, we had Brendan Vidito. He's a writer from Sudbury, Ontario. His work has appeared in several magazines and anthologies, including Dead Bait 4, Splatterpunk's Not Dead, Strange Behaviors, an anthology of absolute luridity, and Tragedy Queen's stories inspired by Lana Del Rey and Sylvia Plath. You can visit him online at brendanvidito.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Brendan Vidito. Links in the show notes. Similarly, there's links in the show notes to my Patreon, patreon.com slash WTR. If you want to help support the show, patreon.com slash WTR. The podcast is free for a reason, but if you want to help me buy the books of the people on the show and uh, maybe pay them in the future, maybe have shows more frequently than once a month, patreon.com slash WTR. But enough of me shilling Let's get into this wonderful conversation that I had with Brendan. One of the things I noticed while I was researching your writing was that you don't have a lot of... You have a lot of writing published, but it all seems to be mostly in print, which seems notable. Yeah, uh... Uh, yeah, as a, I guess as opposed to um, things in, in an online publication, you mean, right? Yeah, as opposed to me, who has like a dozen flash pieces published only online. Yeah, I just uh, I consider myself, I guess, really fortunate because I do like, um, you know, the idea of having something published in a physical format. Um, but I, I, I basically, like for a while when I was uh, submitting my stories, I would actively seek out um, you know, I'd be uh, submitting to more anthologies and stuff. So they would, you, you know, it would be like print on demand type things. And so I was actively seeking out physical, uh, uh, format style books. Uh, that's not to say that like, I, I, you know, I, I feel like with a lot of online stuff, there's a wider reach, but I guess in my case, I just, uh, <laughs> happen to be kind of luckier on the, on the physical front. I like that. I, I, I that's an interesting way of going about it for sure i it's also just kind of nice because it forces the reader to engage with the other writers like i can't you know um i had previously bought tragedy queens which your piece stag loop is published and i bought that to research lisa for a previous episode and in doing so like read the entire collection and was introduced to all these other writers yeah it's an excellent collection yeah for sure uh whereas i don't necessarily read every single piece in in an edition of oculum or something i mean sometimes yeah. i do but not necessarily all the time yeah I, and i i have to agree uh i find it when you pick up a like a short story magazine um, I find myself, you know, you'll gravitate towards the writers or the pieces that seem most 
appealing to you and I feel like it's easier sometimes to just be like oh I'll come back to this later but with anthologies it's um I remember Lisa would often use the kind of like the mixtape analogy mm-hmm. it really holds true because it's just uh there's so much variety you never really get bored especially with tragedy queens like there's such a an array of um of topics and styles that you know you're almost you're being you're being pulled along and you know by the time you reach the end you're like oh man I actually you know I read through this and uh yeah there's really no chance when when an anthology is is put together properly there's no chance for the the reader to get bored so that's sort of the appeal for me when I'm submitting to uh, uh books like that that's a strategy I just I haven't encountered before and granted I've this is episode whatever 13 so I've I've only ever talked to 13 writers in my entire life but uh that, that's a unique strategy and I don't know I like it um your work primarily uh seems to fit in the body horror or or splatterpunk or hardcore uh subgenres what draws you to writing that um well my, my history with horror fiction is a little weird and complicated because uh, growing up i didn't really have much of a fascination for horror uh it came uh, sort of later in my late mid to late teens uh prior to that it was you know i, I was born in 91 so i'm very much like of that generation of like when the Harry Potter books came out and the Lord of the Rings film. So I was really big into fantasy. Uh, and then when I was 15 years old, uh, I started like having experiencing these really bizarre symptoms and like these visual and auditory hallucinations that were really, uh, terrifying in nature. Like I would see like basically demonic entities and stuff. And so for a while I was, uh, kind of carted around to different, you know, psychologists and doctors and whatnot. And eventually they diagnosed me with uh, central nervous system lupus. So that was really like kind of it forced me to reevaluate my life. And the whole experience was so frightening that I actively sought out uh, a way to almost like uh, immunize myself against that fear uh, through this kind of bizarre uh, exposure therapy where I'd watch every horror movie and read every horror book I could find. And that kind of just started this obsession and my preoccupation with the body uh and the way that i write about body horror is very much drawing from my own anxieties uh and kind of my knowledge of having to deal with that through you know this the experience of this illness so i feel like i think that's kind of like the genesis really of why i write body horror it's just it's very personal and it's something that i can kind of get behind Sure, that's fascinating. Uh, I've never heard of that before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, for those, uh, I just actually wrote. Um, well, it was the first time ever I decided to write about it, uh, and it's. I believe it's coming out this month. It's just. It's a piece on how I got into horror, and it goes into detail about my experiences. Uh, and yeah, it was the reason I put it off so long because it was it was difficult to write. Um, you know, having to kind of dig through all those negative emotions and relive those experiences. It definitely wasn't a fun experience, but uh, it's like, hopefully, like, you know, the, I'm, I'm not the only person that uh, underwent this experience. And 
my hope is that you know someone else who maybe is experiencing something similar will be like oh hey like i'm not alone so that's kind of you know the my my hope with this piece yeah absolutely um i'm seeing on your twitter there's a you are holding a gary Busey book and that's (laughs) that has totally derailed me (laughs) (laughs) i don't know like gary Busey is just like personal like a long-running joke for me i just think he's like hilarious in a very awful way i don't know he's just sort of like that that creepy weird uncle to me and uh like i just remember ever you ever see the movie ginger dead man no no (laughs) i think I, i forget who put it out it's one of those really like ultra low budget films and gary Busey. it's basically Basically, a spin on the whole Chucky idea, where like a serial killer inhabits an inanimate object, but in this case, it's Gary Busey's the serial killer, and he possesses a gingerbread cookie or a gingerbread man that murders people. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> and I just thought that the whole movie is just absurd, and yeah, just Gary Busey's not. He's just kind of a weirdo. That yeah, kind of there was a Hunter S. Thompson documentary because I was also eighteen once. And it started out with Gary Busey, like, really condescendingly kind of berating the documentarian about the <laughs> the camera angle and, oh, and, like, directing the shot for himself. Like, no, you need to walk up to me and say, hey, Gary, and I'm going to turn around for my coffee and then we're going to talk and you're going to stand here. And I'm like, whoa, man, just chill this, out. This, this rings a bell. I think I did. I saw that same documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's a definitely a strange man. Um, but but getting back to your writing, as I was reading Nightmares and Ecstasy on Clash Books now, um, it uh, the the back talks about for fans of of Cronenberg, Junji Ito, and Clive Barker, um. And I think that's really fitting, especially the Junji Ito. Like, there's a couple pieces in there. Um, oh, let me look up the name because yeah. it's the one where the the woman's vagina is like a spider worm thing that comes out oh, of her. Yeah, fuck oh, shock. Fuck shock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was the first. Uh, that's the Earl. Well, not the the first that I wrote in the collection, but the first that uh, first story that got published. Uh, it was published in a. Issue, uh, issue number six, I think, of Splatterpunk Zine, um, and uh, I wrote that one. I I moved into my so I think it was about twenty three years old at the time when I was in university, and I moved into my first apartment alone, and uh, I didn't have internet, so I was like, "What am I going to do?" So I just uh, sat down and wrote this story, and it was a story. When I reached the end, I'm just like I was reading it over, and I was like. What the hell's wrong with me? <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, yeah, like Genji Ito, uh, he he didn't directly influence that one. Uh, there is some Japanese influence that one. Notably, there's a movie called um, I'm gonna screw up the the for, it's something nine six nine six four Pinocchio, I think it's called, uh, and it's a Japanese cyberpunk horror film, and there's no real like direct line between the, that film and that story, but I, I kind of drew atmospherically from that one. But, uh, Junji Ito, there's a story in nightmares, uh, called the black waters of Babylon. Mm-hmm. 
and the whole way I formatted that because I like the way Ito has this thing about almost I think they call it the page turn so like when you reach the bottom of, of a like the last panel on a page you'll, you'll see a character's reaction and then you turn the page and it's like this full this full page mm-hmm. illustration is like incredibly like horrifying or graphic thing so I wanted to replicate that in that story and it's basically that one shocking moment at the end of that uh the story Black Waters of Babylon where it I wanted to wanted it to feel like that page flip in an Edo comic. I can see that for sure. And the the giant sort of now that I think about it, it the the whole thing kind of gives me the uh like the end of Uzumaki sort of Yeah feeling. Yeah, that, that cosmic uh implication kind of thing. That's another thing I, I got. As I got a lot of cosmic horror or at least sort of Lovecraftian in that here's like an everyday person who just happens to stumble into something that's way bigger than an everyday person should ever deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the sex toys one, which I think is just called sex toys, right? Yeah. May, felt very uh, weird fiction. Oh, yeah. Me. That... Yeah, the, the main... Actually, the, the influence for that one is really weird. It's a... Uh, the work of Richard Kern, who's a, he's this notable kind of avant-garde, uh, transgressive, I guess, photographer. And he made these really bizarre, like eight millimeter films that around the time of writing that story, I'd watch a lot. And that's where the kind of the idea of this, this, these characters, like trying to make this kind of oversexed weird film came out of. Uh, but like in terms of Lovecraft, like I did like grunt, like as a, you know, when I was first getting into horror, obviously, like I would read a lot of his work, and I liked a lot of his stories. But like as I got older, um, you know, I don't, I don't really think he's a good writer. Like, mm-hmm. and that's taken into account, like the, like his his blatant racism and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but what I do, like, I do like that, just that the, the cosmic element. And for the last story in in Nightmares and Ecstasy, um. It's called a feast of you, and that one was sort of a flip on that idea where uh, the the main character turns out to be one of these cosmic entities, and but it it's sort of a it's a cosmic horror story framed as a domestic drama. So that was like I think that's the one that's most heavily indebted to kind of Lovecraft's cosmology as opposed to any of the others, at least in terms of direct influence. That reminds me sort of more of like a like a Thomas Ligotti sort of thing where it's, yeah you know it's smaller of uh, weird fiction yeah because Ligotti it's very he said something once that I, I I feel like I've kind of appropriated in my own work he tries to he, he, he was speaking about Poe which is how Poe his stories aren't exactly set in our world or their kind of own self-contained kind of dream realities. And, uh, at least a lot of the stories in, in my collection, I, I tried to kind of achieve that where everything feels kind of slightly off. Like if it were a film, like the camera would be canted most of the time to show like just the kind of that unstable yeah. state of mind. Yeah. yeah and like does a really good job of just like, like, he doesn't feel the need to explain anything. He just kind of lets the weird shit happen. And for me, in terms of horror, like the cardinal sin for me is when a, a filmmaker feels the need to explain 
the source of the horror as opposed to just, you know, letting letting it happen and having the characters react. Yeah, I mean, the probably one of the better things that Lovecraft said was that fear is, like, primal and the most primal fear or pure form of fear is fear of the unknown. And as soon as you start expositing too much you kind of ruin that and you ruin it just in it becomes super easy to poke holes in what is being exposited right like if in it follows we were given any more information than we were given that movie would make no sense exactly and uh, just uh to speak of a different movie where it, it sort of embodies this this idea that I was talking about was hereditary for me. Oh yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think I would say like 80% of it. And then suddenly when it became a pagan horror film, it totally lost me. Cause I feel like if it was more like everything else outside of the, the kind of the proposed like supernatural force was more horrifying than what was revealed at the end, at least personally. Um, so I felt it's like the, the, the thing that was menacing the family was just totally left in the dark and it's just this unknowable force. I feel like it, the impact would have been a lot stronger. I I think and, you're right. I, I was into it the whole time because that's my aesthetic, <laughs> but yeah, from a narrative yeah. perspective, absolutely. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. Cause there's that point yeah, in the movie where like your soul just drops into your toes and you're like, Oh God, yeah <laughs> this movie is not going to be fun yeah there's that the, the middle of the film has one of the most powerful scenes and that's probably like thanks to uh tony colette's performance too uh yeah she's just a total powerhouse in that film and yeah and it's just i guess it was just you know for me it was just sort of frustrating i was like oh man this is so great and then uh you know we suddenly like it didn't feel scary anymore to me mm. uh because I, I always like with my stories, I, I like the idea of like closing a book and like still feeling like, oh, it's not over. Like whatever was happening in the story is going to kind of follow me for a little while. And uh, that's something I struggled with, like with longer fiction is like, because as a writer, I feel like sometimes it's just you get that impulse to explain it. You feel the need to sort of give a little bit more context to what you're uh, you're describing and uh, it's easier to do with the shorter work um, but yeah it's a little trickier like in my experience at least with something a little longer I think so I, I think you're kind of right on the money there I I have a, a longer form thing that I, I finished right around the time I finished college and there's a lot of that um, sort of explaining without explaining that I was trying to do because at one point I just like made the characters die and then reincarnate and I was like okay I have no rules for reincarnation what am I going to do and it leads to like the most vague passage I think I've ever written um and sometimes that works like I mean I I, if it's done well I I prefer that than you know the mechanics of because that's another thing like growing up reading fantasy I didn't really give much thought to it but coming back to it as an adult uh you know just that that how painstaking it is for some of these writers having to the world building and stuff and uh like 
the intricacies of like, you know, a, a magic system where it's just, yeah, it's some mind boggling and it's not something I would ever attempt to, to try myself. It does almost seem as though the world building is the fun part for some of these authors. And then writing a book is a way to justify spending all that time building a world like that. Yeah. And, uh, I recently encountered a writer, um, blanking on his name. Hold on. Uh, M. John, M. John Harrison. He wrote this, well, a series of, uh, novels and short stories called Viraconium. And his whole thing, he was trying to write a fantasy story that wasn't tied down by the notion of world building or canon or anything like that. Hmm. So he just kind of like, it's very bizarre. It starts almost like a, a, a dying earth story that's set like in the distant future. Um, but he's, yeah, just because he's unburdened by those conventions, he's just able to focus on the story itself and not, you know, every, like the, the minutia. That's really cool. It goes to, that's like the exact opposite reason of why I don't read hard science fiction. Right. Yeah. It's that, that whole thing. <clears throat> um, so what, what is, uh, what is next for you? Because we have Nightmares and Ecstasy, which is lots of shorter pieces. Are you working on a novel? Do you have a novel coming? Yeah, uh, it's actually like it's it's pretty much done. I'm just uh, being very like meticulously combing over it. It'll be coming out uh, through Clash. Um, there's no it has there's nothing no date's been announced yet, uh, but it it should be out by the end of the year. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, I'm not quite sure. It might be a novella. It might be a novel. Uh, it, well, it'll be a short novel if it is. I'm just, it really depends on how much I decide to, to trim it. Um, yeah. And it, it, I feel like people who picked up nightmares and ecstasy will be a little, not confused, but they'll be a little surprised that the direction the book takes, it's a lot more accessible than, uh, these short stories and the it, it can be extreme at times but it's that it's not anywhere near some of these stories and uh it's an idea that i had kind of floating around my mind for for about a decade and uh it was actually the first thing i attempted to write after i really got into horror and i realized really early on as i was writing it that i wasn't ready that the idea was just too big for me to actually fully kind of wrap my head around at that point I was too young and inexperienced. Oh, interesting. And the trigger for me was because the whole book without really giving much away, it just, it, it's a horror novel that examines the culture of fear basically that we inhabit right now. Um, and at the time, like, cause you know, I remember once, uh, a group of friend friends uh, were, were talking about the first event that made us aware of like a, the wider world. So my uh, my partner's much much older than me, and her 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 story was the Berlin Wall falling. That was the first time that she kind of her eyes opened, and uh, for me it was nine eleven. Sure. So uh, 
that kind of, you know, that, that, that specter of that is just hanging over a large part of um, my early adolescence and going forward from there. So, yeah, this novel just kind of attempts to sort of explore like like the notion of like fear itself and how it affects people kind of in, in today's society. And it's also like it, it takes a lot of conventions from the drug novel uh, and marries those two things together. Yeah, I'm, I'm being vague because I don't want to yeah. say t- at this point. But yeah, I just feel like it is it's different, but there are like it has the same surreal elements and there are uh there is some body horror as well but it's also like uh i think readers of collection will be a little hopefully in a in a good way when they read the the book well i'm i'm sold on it already (laughs) (laughs) um it's interesting one of the things i wanted to make a jokey big deal about is how you're the first uh non-american person i've had on the show so (laughs) we're we're now international um But you and I are also very closely the same age. I was born in 92. And oh, okay. um, so being being a Canadian, how did uh, 9-11 like sort of manifest uh, for you over there? Because uh, I um, remember what it was like as, as an eight-year-old um, American. Yeah. Um, I can only really speak to my own, my personal experience because I I was I was only I think yeah nine I guess um, I just remember it had we I think school ended early that day uh, they 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 let us go home and my mom picked me my mom picked me up and uh, she explained in like I guess the the simplest term she could what happened and I think it was just you know being a kid and you're like oh man like are the like is this going to work its way up here? And, uh, it was every restaurant you go to from what I recall, like there'd be the news would be on. And then, so it'd be like, it, I'm pretty sure like the coverage was fairly extensive. And just as, like being a naive kid, basically like that was that fear of like, like how bad is it not fully understanding exactly like the gravity, like the gravity of the situation and like that fear of it working its way up into Canada. Yeah. Uh, Cause I have no re- recollection of like pre nine 11. Cause I didn't do much traveling prior to that. And I feel like that's one of the areas that's just like the most blatant, that blatantly affected. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're, I'm I'm looking at a map right now. You are closer to where I live in Michigan than um, New York, the city. Um, so so that's something I I find interesting. But um, yeah, that's it's it's interesting because for me it didn't necessarily open my eyes to the larger world like that. But I guess it's because it felt like home, but also not like home at the same time. Yeah, it was still far enough to be, you know, like fairly remote from your experience, I guess. Yeah, I also remember my parents like turning the TV off every time I went into the room and us us being sent home from school with a letter that I didn't read and then sort of like learning about it all kind of after it happened rather than as it happened. Um and then that whole experience being tainted because like as i was learning about it as a a young teen um 
it's also when like right around the time that YouTube was becoming accessible for every person who had you know iMovie or whatever. So I'm I'm I was learning about it while simultaneously learning about the conspiracy theories around it. Oh, that's yeah, that's actually really interesting. That that whole idea that blurring of fact and fiction really plays into like my book and it's something that really is really fascinating to me it's because it's just we live in a world that makes misinformation so easy uh so you know it fear has become this like this tool and it always has been but it's just even more like grotesque now with the internet where it's just uh, there people use fear as a you know as a way as simple as like selling someone something as a preventative like you know like oh i don't know like uh you should buy this for your car because it'll it'll save your life you get in a car accident or something it's all like it's just like the marketing of fear then there's the, the politics of fear like it's just it's there's not an area of society that's untouched by its influence and that's just something that i was really kind of fascinated with and wanted to explore Huh. Yeah, I, I I I see where you're coming from. I don't even know how I would touch that. Yeah. So I'm interested to to read it just just to see how somebody else would would begin to deal with that. Especially yeah. because you're dealing it seems like you're dealing with it in a more general sense where I just my own political leanings or whatever like whenever i think about fear in that sort of way i'm immediately drawn to like how fascists use it yeah yeah oh exactly yeah totally and so like it's hard for me to think about fear on a mass form like that as just kind of like this abstract concept that's everywhere um yeah and and rather seeing it as like a tool that a very specific set of people are using but i also i also get it in like advertising and stuff like that too like that yeah the undercoating yeah. in your car and stuff like that yeah exactly and yeah the that was the challenge about writing this was that you know i'm grappling with this idea that's just like totally unwieldy and it was a matter of just kind of honing it in and uh just filtering it through uh, like the, the 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 lead character, um, because I remember uh, I wrote a first draft and I handed it to Kristoff uh, over at Clash Books, and he read it. And he, and he we both agree that this needs to be in first person, and I think that's a lar- large part of it. Um, it just it makes the story more intimate, and it also like it, it kind of it's more of a a subjective point of view to this this thing that's almost too big for one person to fully like one narrator to fully encapsulate i like that idea i i have noticed that in reading your work you do tend to uh not stick with one um narrative distance yeah, I tried to experiment with like there's even there's first person present in there with a story called Piss Slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tend I I feel most comfortable in third person uh, past tense, uh, and I think it just mostly it it works for a lot of these stories because of that weird kind of detached like dreamlike distance. Uh, 
but it didn't quite work for the book, at least not in that draft. Um, and it's just fun to learn because like it, it, there's a bit of a learning curve when you're jumping back and forth between different um, tenses and styles. But yeah, the, I feel like in hindsight, I'm going to be looking back on nightmares and feeling like it's, it was very experimental for me, just this playground of trying to figure out uh, what style kind of uh, was the most appropriate for my purposes. I really, I really liked um, the the morphing between the characters in Piss Slave. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought that was really clever. It reminded me kind of, and it's probably because this is the only analog I have. But it kind of reminded me of American Psycho when, uh, whenever Patrick Bateman's character, and it only happens like two or three times, maybe just two. Whenever he's about to get caught or doing something really, really extreme, it slips into third person for a couple paragraphs. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, it, it, and this isn't like that at all, but that's, that's kind of yeah, like where my brain went. Patches himself. Yeah. Almost. Um, but this is like the exact opposite where, where the character is like slipping into it. Yeah. There, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I can't really explain other than what's on the page, what's going on there. But yeah, it was just meant to just feel very jarring because the whole thesis of that story is that the one thing that unites basically every human being is pain because mm-hmm. that's something we can agree on so it's just that it was kind of this visual representation of you know they're they're basically like they're they're sharing a communion through physical pain and suffering that was the whole idea in that one yeah you also have a piece that's in second person too the the video game walkthrough oh yeah that uh it was a yeah the walkthrough yeah uh miranda mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't even remember writing that one to be no honest. it was a it was a last minute addition to uh, the collection and i wasn't sure it was gonna fit because it was just so it was so left field um and, but i i mean yeah i guess like it's just the, the idea of a very kind of almost creepy pasta ish where it's mm-hmm. just like this game that doesn't exist and yeah. yeah. So so somebody played PT and said, oh, okay, let's let's do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man. PT. Yeah, I remember those those, those were the days. I'm like uh I, in terms of I, I don't play as much games as I did uh, you know, years ago, but yeah, PT I just remember that one really well. <laughs> Uh, it's just as a interactive because I feel like you know what I admire most about any art form is like if it takes full advantage of its medium and as like a horror experience like a virtual horror experience that that game really kind of doubled down on that uh, and that's one of the reasons I, I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know you like needed a headset to because to, you had to speak into the game to have certain things happen yeah, it was just a way to kind of break those walls and uh, add, I guess, like some uh, layers of interactivity. I yeah, I I think about that a lot. Like, what what more can we do with the the art mediums that we have? Because I'm totally cool with people pushing virtual reality, and I think virtual reality should be a thing, or like AR. Um, 
but like having having read House of Leaves because I had to, um, yes. and then I recently finished reading S, which is another sort of thing like that. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. No, uh, I, I read House of Leaves though. Okay, S is not a horror book, but it's written by J.J. Abrams and Doug Dorst, and oh. it like very much makes the the medium is the message true for the book. It's um it's a, a book that uh two characters are writing in the margins of. So you oh. um like the the book itself comes in a box that's sealed because it has inserts because they've written notes to each other. Um all the pages are like dyed sort of a blotchy yellow um etc etc but that the idea that like there is a, a story and then there's footnotes from the translator and there's all these all these annotations in the margins because these two characters are writing notes to each other and the ink for those notes are in different colors denoting like different times um wow yeah it sounds ambitious <laughs> it certainly was and I have no idea, like, how you would even begin to do something like that. Like, House of Leaves kind of makes sense where instead of opening up Word, you open up InDesign and then you just kind of go and you have a layered narrative and what you end up with is a, a book that people have to, like, spin around in their hands and hold up to a mirror to read. Yeah. Yeah, because some, some parts of that book uh, were really strong. It just that, uh, well, especially just the kind of the core of the book that... Uh, was it like the Nat the Davidson record? Was that was like mm -hmm. it's, yeah. Just there was a lot of I like that idea that well it, it's very like cosmic horror where the the house is bigger on the inside than on the outside, uh, and just that sense of of growing claustrophobia. But he's able to sort of reflect that on the page by making the writing smaller. I thought that was really clever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it is definitely like it. It's work to read through that. Uh, and it takes, yeah, you just need to really set some time aside and dedicate yourself to it. You you have some of that, um, the house is bigger on the inside and in your work too. Um, oh, with, uh, yeah, Feast of You, the uh, the house, yeah, with the yeah. door being to different, well, different parts of the house that they didn't know existed. And yeah, um, yeah, the, the whole idea, like I, I said, before like it's sort of like cosmic horror but disguised as a domestic drama and uh, uh andrew j stone a friend of mine he's also a writer um he said he compared it to uh, dog tooth oh i love that movie and and that was a, a huge compliment and that was kind of what i was going for and i i don't know if i succeeded entirely with the the kind of the low-key cosmic elements um because the whole there's a scene where like the house literally moves through space, but it's all told in a dream sequence to sort of like add an, like a, a buffer. Uh, but the implication is that it's actually is moving like that. Uh, but yeah, it's just, yeah, I'm hoping people will read it as a drama as opposed to a cosmic horror story. I like that. I like that a lot. I find that, um, 
kind of kind of going in a in a different but but similar place um kind of back to body horror i've been doing a painfully incrementally more amount of like academic reading on body horror oh yeah <laughs> um for for a project that i'm working on and uh, I found an article from the 90s where this woman posits that there's like three different types of extreme um, genre. There's body horror, pornography, and melodrama. And it's <laughs> so funny to me that in 2019, like, you know, almost almost 30 years after she wrote this, like, those are the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's true, and I, I, it always struck me as weird, like a that body hole. Because for me, uh, I just so much in body hole, like for subtext, and uh, you can explore these really kind of difficult subjects, but tell it through the body and add this extra layer of intimacy. Uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why I find Cronenberg really works, and why his work is so intelligent course like you know he's show, showing these like incredibly grotesque images but uh the kind of the, the ideas he's conveying are 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 very kind of like in depth and thought out and because the guy yeah primarily like he's a really intelligent man and he has a very scientific mind and that really comes through in his films for sure. I mean, I mean, uh, like Shivers is is very sexual. Rabbit is sexual. Uh, the Fly has a lot of sex in it. Um, yeah. Dead Ringers is, uh, a very sexual, like yeah. auto sexual, in, yeah. in a sort of way, which you don't see a lot of on film. No, and his stuff for the most part still holds up because I'm I'm editing or co-editing. Uh, an anthology of Cronenberg. Uh, it's called uh, the New Flesh Stories, inspired by uh, uh, art fiction. Yeah, like a tribute. Sorry, a literary tribute to David Cronenberg. Uh, and I'm editing that with Sam Richard of Weird Punk Press. And uh, so, I, in, in, while I'm editing this story, I wanted to kind of revisit a lot of his movies. And I watched Shivers uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's still some of it's still really. Uh, kind of hard to watch even though there's moments where that that you know it devolves into comedy just because like you know the nature of some of these films like don't age well but for the most part uh yeah it's still very unsettling and had this been made now i don't think it would have happened like you know this wouldn't have this wouldn't have taken off in in 2019 no uh gotten away with you know because it's very like it's the whole film it's an you know there's that this the terror the terror comes from like you know these these familiar people suddenly turn into these like mindless rape zombies and that's horrifying and yeah it's just and the interesting thing to me too is that uh i think someone approached cronenberg and asked him if the aids epidemic influenced the fly and oh, he sure. said and he, he said no uh but then he also said if uh, his famous comment about uh, if his films are minded and his response was something like, I'm Canadian, so I don't really have like intent. Like there's no like political <laughs> intent. <laughs> yeah, you guys all just pay 90% taxes and your pseudo socialist 
uh, utopia <laughs> up there. Oh yeah, I don't know. Like Ontario, <laughs> we have a new premier now who's not uh, looking too kindly on on uh, the province. So I don't know. It mm-hmm. seems like yeah. One of the things I think works for Shivers, especially now, is the seventiesness of it. I'm I'm looking at screenshots and uh, there's and it might just be me, but like there's there's the like seventies filmmaking had a look to it that uh like it's unsettling no matter the genre of the film. Yeah, and I think it's probably the like the grain and the the light and i love the 70s aesthetic personally if i could find a house that was like basically a time capsule that all the furnishings and all the decorations were from the 70s i'd like i'd be in heaven that'd be amazing <laughs> those those uh, weird like pill things that open up into a chair but you have to sit on it very strangely yeah. <laughs> for it to work yeah there's so many there's absurd things where and yeah everything like the the paneling and yeah like you said like the, the plastic and everything gleaming or it's just like kind of a dull brown did you when you were starting to get into horror did you like were you kind of scattershot uh grabbing everything that you could or did you move through subgenres and decades and stuff like that um, yeah, it was very, like, I think of it now, like, almost like following a web. Um, I started, I bought an anthology of monster theme stories because I felt like it was a good way to kind of, you know, it would kind of hold my hand into the horror genre because I, as a kid, I liked monster films. Like I watched like all like the Ray Harryhausen's movies and, uh, all the Japanese Godzilla films. <laughs> mm. So that, that was, I, I thought that was a good bet. And um, from there, I bought a book called uh, it just it was like on writing horror, uh, and it was put out by the Horror Writers Association and edited by Mort Castle, I think. And there's a section toward the beginning, right after the intro, where it's like basically uh, a list of essential reading if you're going to write horror fiction. Um, so you had obviously like the classics, like there was Frankenstein and Dracula. But then there was also, uh, you know, Richard Matheson, uh, yeah, and some like some pretty deep cuts too. Like, well, not Joe Lansdale is not a deep cut, but some. Um, but yeah, I just kind of started there, and then, you know, you would read one thing, and then you do an internet search of like what's similar to this, and then you just follow that web, and so like you you go from like, for example, reading Lovecraft to finding Thomas Ligotti and like Ramsey Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually like the one the one writer that really struck a nerve with me was Clive Barker because uh, I think I might be wrong but I think his Books of Blood was in that list in the uh, book on writing horror and uh, that uh, it's it, it immensely humbling like Nightmares and Ecstasies being compared to the, those books um, yeah because those were really formative for me just in terms of I like his marriage of uh, this almost like near purple prose with like this really grotesque imagery and he's just uh, very forward thinking with his ideas and yeah just a a huge fan (laughs) of his of his work I'm so sad that I've or my my experience with Clive Barker is kind of backward 
Um, oh yes, he started with his fantasy, or yeah, I I was gifted Imagica and then Weave World, and I like I haven't made it to his horror stuff. I have so m- many things to read, you know. I can't just like dig through one author at a time. But yeah, um, I mean, I I've seen the Hellraiser movies and uh, what's that Nightbreed and uh those things so like i i get i get the aesthetic but i I wish i i had experienced the the horror writing first because i i get what you're saying about like the purple prose too because i was reading all of his urban fantasy stuff which really lends itself to that sort of thing Mm -hmm. yeah and actually it was funny like our experiences are totally reversed because i read his i think it helped too so like when i when when I first read, like the first time I ever picked up Clyde Barker, so um, you know, I was talking earlier that I had a nervous central nervous system lupus, and I was on uh, corticosteroids for a while, like too long, and it ended up uh, wearing down my hips, so I needed a double hip replacement. And uh, I think it was the first because it was a year apart, because I always I needed a weight bearing leg between surgeries, and it was the first surgery, and I was lying in the hospital bed, and my I remember my dad ran and got me The Brood, like the Cronenberg film, and Clive Barker's Books of Blood because I asked for these things and like I wanted to pass the time. And I was high on morphine and I read The Midnight Me Train in the hospital and that was a really bad idea. <laughs> but I think that it just because of that, it just sort of like Clive Barker was just kind of like branded onto my brain. But yeah, because of that, because I started with horror, I kind of I was very reluctant reading his fantasy um and i only recently like this past winter read uh weave world which i guess is kind of widely considered his his best fantasy work yeah and it's great it's just it's so different at least to me compared to something like uh well any of the books of blood stories or damnation game or the hellbound heart yeah i i i also find that my descent into horror is is much more visual than than yours too um i don't read a lot of like horror type stuff i've everyone maybe once or twice a year i try to read one of the the older things i have like an Algernon blackwood book and oh yeah and um we mentioned legati who's not older um but like my my horror journey started mostly watching 80s B movies so oh, yeah. the stuff and chud and yeah. um thing, things like that reanimator and the hellraiser movies and and the nightmare on elm street movies and yeah i i i i'm kind of bummed out that i didn't i didn't have that in my childhood <laughs> because like I like I said like I wasn't into horror and you know growing up like the early 2000s and the late 90s I feel like were like the worst uh time like the worst times for horror film oh god yes uh <laughs> just it was, yeah like just like these really bad like kind of ultra polished movies that like I just I I think like that's sort of the one of the reasons why I didn't take it seriously for so long Cause like, I don't know. I wasn't like, I didn't like the soft films or, or uh, you know, something like wrong turn, like all those. And mm-hmm. I didn't even like, I mean, I'm, I'm probably in, a, in the kind of minority, but I, I don't like 
the scream films either <laughs> oh yeah uh i just felt i just feel like the meta thing is a little condescending <laughs> maybe maybe now because mm. it was at the time but uh but yeah it's just it was unfortunate i i didn't get to like chud and the stuff and like all those really good kind of 80s block films and like when i started kind of self-educating on the genre um but i watched everything and it was like even like the most bottom of the barrel. I remember watching this movie called uh, The Corpse Grinders. And oh, that uh, sounds it, familiar. Yeah, and it's, it was the copy that I had was so grainy that I could barely tell what was happening. But it was basically, I think someone puts like taints cat food. And then when the cats start eating it, they develop a taste for human flesh. <laughs> and it, so it's half the movie, like just from my experience watching it, because it was so dark, it was just, you, it was cats yowling and people screaming. And like, like a half lit room <laughs> so i would watch that and then i'd watch like you know uh movies like have you seen possession with sam neill mm, probably but i don't remember right now i think it's french or it's a it's a it was multiple countries involved in its production but it's primarily french i think and it's just like it's a story about infidelity but it's probably one of the weirdest stories weirdest approaches to that topic hmm i don't maybe i haven't seen this i'm looking at the screenshots man he's 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 doing his sam neil thing though mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> huh yeah i i am um, my like movie horror education basically started when i got netflix because you watch one thing and then Netflix thinks that it's your favorite thing in the world and oh, yeah. <laughs> um and I haven't I'm not a huge like physical media guy when it comes to film I I, I don't read ebooks or anything but I I tend to prefer to stream my movies and not have them cluttering my house but so so like deeper cut type movies like a lot of this sort of dark grainy um japanese horror films i haven't seen unless it was like a friend saying hey i I got a copy of tokyo gore police we gotta (laughs) watch tokyo gore police which was really uncomfortable for me with the with the (laughs) self-harming thing at that point in my life (laughs) but like yeah i could see that yeah um so like there's a lot that i haven't seen that i that i need to see but I, i don't know if i just need to like start buying blu-rays and dvds or if i need to start going into the seedier parts of the internet again to be able to watch stuff (laughs) streaming with russian subtitles or what yeah that's the thing because like with me um like i love the idea like streaming like you know being able to just go like uh on the playstation store and rent a film and watch it instantly um like i am nostalgic obviously for like you know going to a blockbuster but like that's the problem too is like because of digital distribution a lot of these deeper cut films tend not to get any distribution so they just kind of get lost in in the kind of the media void so i think that's like i do like owning uh, physical copies but i'm very selective like i i too have that issue with space and i just tend to get stuff that like my whole mentality is like like something really weird where you wouldn't be able to just readily have access to. And just knowing that like, you know, I, I, I own this, like this, you know, this film I really like that it's just harder to get. I think that's the appeal for me. It's almost like 
like a personal archive. Sure. Yeah, you you have an artifact of something that is important. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've found that that with like owning movies, I it generally needs to at least come with a director commentary or something to give me value in the rewatch. So I don't yeah. I don't rewatch a lot of movies aside from Eraserhead because I am that basic. <laughs> it's a good movie though. I still I still like that one. I think that's my favorite. I don't know. It's it's a tie between that and Blue Velvet for me mm. for a favorite Lynch film. But yeah, I do love Eraserhead. Uh, the the first time I ever encountered Eraserhead, and I just remembered this through telling a story to to some work friends. I was at a friend's house, and I think it was, I think we had been drinking, and we decided to watch Primer. But we had decided like very late, one or two in the morning, and I fell asleep halfway through Primer and woke up halfway through Eraserhead. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. And my mind broke. You're probably thinking your nightmare was being screened. Under the <laughs> it, it was very, very weird. And that that guy who I was watching with, like, he definitely needed somebody awake experiencing a racer head with him because you can't <laughs> you can't even start humming in heaven. Everything is fine without him becoming very uncomfortable. <laughs> you see, like, I I actually never had the privilege of watching a racer head with someone. It was always like I remember though. Uh, back when I was single, like it was kind of this thing that I wanted to try and be like, "Hey, you want to come over to my house and watch Eraserhead?" But it was just like the least, you know, romantic or just like the, it's like good luck, you know, mm-hmm. impress. <laughs> well, it would be pretty cool if the person was like really into it. But it was just this thing for me where, like, I I think I was 16 years old when I saw it for the first time, and I deliberately sought it out. Uh, it was really backwards. It was, it was, so, I, I got into bizarro fiction. I, or I discovered bizarro fiction. Then I remember one day I was just, I, I typed in bizarro in Google or something and, or uh, Eraserhead because uh, the main press for bizarro is Eraserhead Press and mm-hmm. the film came up. And I'm like, oh, this looks cool. So I watched that. And that just kind of is this weird way of discovering that movie. Not as weird, not as good as yours, though. That's, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, I I had heard about it before because I had a friend who had found like just the the gold mine torrent of horror films back in high school and she's like, "So I just downloaded 200 horror movies and I'm going to watch them all." Yeah. I'm like, "All right, dude. Good luck." Um yeah. but she would she would tell me about them. So instead of learning chemistry, I heard about a lot of strange horror films. Oh, okay. That's um nice. So I have found, too, that it seems like body horror tends to translate to film at least more. And yeah. I, I don't know, maybe maybe you know better than I do. Was body horror a film thing first, or was it a, a literature thing first? Uh, that, that's, so that's, that's definitely something I gave thought to, because um, a few people that read the collection were saying like, Oh, I never knew that there was body horror fiction before. And obviously like there is horror novels and short stories with body horror elements. But I, I do feel like it's primarily like it, it works better in a visual medium. Um, because I remember picking up, you know how like, uh, forget the name of the press, but they put out like the mammoth book of, and like just fill in the blank, like the mammoth book of vampires or like the, oh, the one. I, and there was, they released one called the mammoth book of body horror. And they tried 
to go chronologically from the story that Mary Shelley wrote, um, and the names escaping. I think not, not like not, not the body snatcher, uh, something along those lines. But I felt like a lot of the earlier stuff they're selecting was a bit of a stretch. But I do like I would I would say that yeah I think it has its roots firmly in film, and I think just now it's sort of really taking off in literature because uh, you know it, you I feel like with lit literature you can actually add, you can add that extra element uh, in terms of like you can explore what's what's going through the character's mind as like his body his or her bodies. Uh, transforming you know and that's not something you can necessarily get on film you just get the purely visceral side of it yeah absolutely and and i you can you can start making things a lot dreamier a lot quicker with with language and choosing certain words you know rather than relying on lighting or practical effects or something like that i i definitely think that that's a thing for lack of better words yeah. <laughs> um i mean and there's there's like the whole splatterpunk thing too which i'm not super um hip to but it, it certainly seems like between splatterpunk and and bizarro there is a place for body horror these days and horror lit yeah and i feel like it, we're in like really interesting times because like horror is having like quite the resurgence right now like like there's a lot of publishers that are opening new horror labels to accommodate this this influx of horror fiction which is amazing and just like looking at netflix so like the sheer number of exclusives that they're releasing that are you know basically horror movies or horror series and uh i just love it because you know like i just feel like we're what we're moving towards now is sort of like, you know, if you thought of like the early, like nineties thinking about superhero films and like they're few and far between. And now it's, it's such like this, this staple in popular culture. And I feel like horror is, horror has always been like, obviously a little more like uh, at the forefront, but I feel like right now it's exploding to like this, like such a magnitude that yeah it's a, it's interesting to see and like there's because of that there's a lot more weirder um uh, films coming out and people are taking risks which is always good yeah and you have places like like blumhouse that are allowing that to happen to their their stated uh producer roles are basically let the writers and directors do their thing and and do their best to accommodate what their vision is so yeah and it's it runs counter to the major studios and it's amazing yeah and it's mostly because i think blumhouse has this low budget policy but it like i mean i it it basically i i love that because having a lower budget forces you to be creative so you end up with more ingenuity in your film than something with like a 300 million dollar budget where the ceiling's so high that you can't possibly reach it. Yeah, you have James Cameron doing a horror film for in in the style of Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> Just 3D high frame rate. <laughs> Everybody has to sit in the D box seats that shake you around. We're projecting smells through through the scenes like you're at a Disney place. Yeah, you need to bring back Smelloscope. That's one thing that we're missing. Oh, like, absolutely. It, <laughs> 
Just imagine watching a John Waters film with Smell of Skull. Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> oh. oh, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Johnny Depp really smells as bad as he looks like he smells. Oh, God. Every McConaughey movie is just like, just the whole theater smells like body odor. <laughs> body odor and, and Axe body spray. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are nearing the end of, of the non-reading literature portion. Do you have... Uh, I'm going to give you the final word. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm going uh, to... I have a creative essay coming out this month through uh, the town crier. Uh, it's a it's, it's kind of a part of a journal called the Puritan. It's out of Canada and it's about my experiences with horror and living with a central nervous system lupus. So that, check that out. I also, um, I'm co-editing the David Cronenberg anthology, the new flesh. Uh, and that should be out soon ish. We're just, we're in the editing phases right now. I have a short story coming out in August, I believe, uh, in a collection called Pluto and Furs. Uh, and the story's called Walking in Ash, and it's a sort of uh, story about anxiety and the end of the world. And uh, I'll have a, my follow-up with Clash. will be coming out near the end of the year, so keep an eye out for that. All right, so this, uh, I'm going to read from the last story in Nightmares in Ecstasy. It's a novelette called The Feast of You, and I'll read basically uh, the first chapter as a, uh, just as kind of a teaser. Riker looked at the sky reflected in his coffee. Thick iron clouds pushed in from the city he had just fled, moving toward the diner with almost predatory purpose. He shifted uneasily in his booth. Cracked and blistered vinyl creaked under his weight. He brought the mug to his lips and drank. His hand shook so badly a thread of coffee dribbled from the corner of his mouth. It was scalding, but he barely noticed. The only thought that occupied his mind was how he needed to get as far away from the city as possible. And as soon as the caffeine kicked in, he couldn't afford to waste another minute. He was, after all, still within their zone of influence. Despite its stinging warmth, the coffee, straight black and electrified with three packs of sugar, did an excellent job jump-starting his system. He hadn't slept in over 48 hours, and the energy now easing into his bloodstream almost brought tears to his eyes. The only thing was, he also had very little to drink in the last couple days, and the coffee was beginning to fill his bladder to the point of discomfort. An itinerary formed in his mind. He'd take a piss, finish his third cup, leave the diner, drive until night, Fall, find a cheap motel, unplug the room's electronics to prevent them from learning of his whereabouts, get a good night's sleep, and finish up the drive in the morning. There was bound to be some place where they couldn't find him. He hoped with every quivering nerve in his body that it wasn't simply a pipe dream. The bell above the door jangled. Riker spun around so fast his neck cracked. A family of three stood in the entrance. They looked like they'd stepped from the pages of a department store catalog. The father had a kind but plain face, balding, the dark hair on his temples turning gray. He wore a t-shirt with the logo of some sports team Riker remembered from his childhood. His wife was a head shorter, also plain but beautiful in her way. A scarf was knotted loosely around her neck and a purse dangled from one arm. She held her daughter's hand, the diamond of her ring finger catching and refracting the diner's fluorescent light. 
The child was clad in bright colors, and in her other hand she carried a plastic zip container decorated with leering cartoon characters. Sweat popped on Riker's forehead and trickled down the groove of his spine. An invisible fist punched through his stomach and squeezed his entrails. For a moment he couldn't breathe, couldn't move. He watched, riveted with terror, as the father inclined his head, said something to his daughter that made her laugh, and together the family made their way to a booth on the opposite side of the diner. The only other patron apart from Riker, an older man with a gray beard and weather-worn jacket, smiled at the little girl as she passed. Riker tore his eyes away from the new arrivals. The clouds reflected in his coffee were closer now. He scooted to the edge of of his seat, shot up, and walked briskly to the bathroom. His bladder was so full it hurt, and for one embarrassment second he thought he'd pissed himself, but it was only sweat. It coated every inch of his body like an amniotic sack. The bathroom door hit the wall with a thunderclap smash. He darted toward the urinal, fumbled with his fly, and let loose a stream so powerful it splashed back from the stained porcelain. He bowed his head, breath coming out in labored gasps. His heart hammered gunfire quick. Empty, he zipped up, staggered to the sink. His long black hair was plastered to his forehead. He threw cold water on his face, made a sound cross between a groan and a whimper. That family, they're just people, they're harmless. Even so, they reminded Riker too much of them, those things he'd fled from. He remained at the sink for another minute or two, hands grasping the edges, head bent toward the drain. When his heart rate slowed and his breathing grew steady, he straightened and exited the bathroom. The family, the old man and the waitress behind the counter all stared at him. His throat moved. He directed his gaze at the floor. Quick, purposeful strides carried him to his booth. He gripped the handle of his coffee mug in a quaking fist and down the rest of its contents, wincing at a bitter taste he hadn't noticed before. When he turned around, running a hand over his mouth, the waitress was standing inches from his face. Ready to settle up? she asked. Yeah, he managed to stutter, removing the wallet from his back pocket. He threw a five on the chip formica and got the hell out of there. He had to move. The engine of his rusted beater growled in protest before sputtering to life. He peeled out of the gravel parking lot, throwing up dust and hitting the highway at 60 miles an hour. The woods on either side blurred into abstraction, flashes of green, brown, and gray as the sky leaked through gaps between the trees. When the diner shrank then disappeared in the rearview mirror, Riker finally eased off the gas. The speedometer swung from 120 to 90. Thankfully, this piece of shit didn't explode, and he couldn't help but laugh. It was strained but genuine, and the longer it went on, the louder and more unhinged it became. Soon he was howling, tears blurring his vision, an open palm beating a crazed rhythm against the ceiling. Calm returned in waves until he was silent and staring at the road, his throat and chest sore from the outburst. Silence reigned for a time before he decided to turn on the radio. It should be safe to listen to a couple of songs, he reasoned. As long as he remained quiet, they wouldn't be able to hear him over the airwaves. The jockey said, Now here's a favorite of mine. I think many of you out there can use some of its medicine, especially with all the bad in the world lately. So here's... Riker relaxed his shoulders, easing back into his seat, allowing the music to wash over him. The drum beat a slow, heavy sound. The guitar was mellow and muted, the lyrics deep-voiced and lullaby smooth. Combined with the monotony of the road, the flashing yellow lines... Riker felt himself lulled into a trance-like state. His eyelids grew heavy, his muscles black. A flash in the rearview mirror. He shook his head to clear it. Another flash, and Riker recognized it for what it was. Lightning. The clouds and the storm they carried were closing in. 
His head was full of cotton, his eyelids dropped, and his limbs were growing numb. What the hell is happening? He blinked several times, but his vision refused to clear. It was like his eyes were smeared with petroleum jelly. He pulled onto the side of the road and could only tell he was on the shoulder by the crunch of gravel under the tires. His eyes were useless and he, couldn't and he could barely keep them open. His breathing grew shallower by the second, the rise and fall of his chest a lulling rhythm. Oh shit, no, I can't fall asleep now. What's going on? He lifted a leaden arm and clumsily jabbed the button to turn off the radio. Silence except for his own breathing. Thunder rumbled not far behind. His eyelids fluttered closed, his head lolled onto one shoulder. Please, don't fall asleep. The plea crawled around inside his head. As he plunged into a mire of unconsciousness, his last thought was of the strange bitterness in his last mouthful of coffee. 